All right. I'm going to say it. This will be the intro because I just went through eight or nine different attempts of trying to start this and I hated all of them. So I'm just going to go with this. Welcome to this episode. Thank you for listening. This one is called The Holy Practice of Cow Tipping. Now, I know you like that uh, title, but just got to say, uh, if this is your first time listening, this is the Ambushed Podcast. This is a pun on a nickname that I used to have, but my real name is John. And I was trained as a pastor, and this is one of the ways in which I try to kind of give, you could say they're kind of like weekly sermons, but they really aren't just directed towards church folk. They're actually trying to have a, a larger discussion about all of these things. So thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've been listening in a bunch, thank you again. I had a, a really good summer. Yes, I was back last week with last week's episode, but this one I'm excited for. But before I do, I also want to give a shout out because he might be listening this guy, Andrew. Andrew, I ran into at a going away party in North Philly not too long ago. And it was so awesome because he heard me at this party. He's like, I know that voice. Who is that? And then it finally dawned on him who, that he heard my voice first from a podcast. And so it was it was kind of like a groundbreaking moment, and I felt very humbled that a guy ran into me who already was listening to me, but apparently didn't know what I looked like. Anyways, Andrew, if you're listening, thank you. You're fantastic. And let's get on with it. This episode is called The Holy Practice of Cow Tipping. Now, you might know where this is going. If you do not, great, because there's a good pun in this. But we're also going to talk about a fair number of things that are, I believe, really important. In anticipation of that, let me say this. We're going to go back in time just a little bit. I need to tell you a, a quick story. I'm going to talk about a word and then break down the implications of the word. So a story, a word, and then the implications thereof. You ready? All right. I just got situated in my chair a little bit better. A number of years ago, I was in grad school. Now, it's grad school for pastors, which is called seminary. I already went through undergrad, and at this point, I had a number of classes that I had to take on quote-unquote spiritual formation. Now, nothing should really uh, <laughs> make you question a class about spiritual growth than to have a class about spiritual formation as if there is a straight and linear way to grow in that side of your life. Anyways, you probably could Im imagine I was, I look back now and I imagine that I was a bit of a punk. I had some professors in seminary that really seemed to enjoy me because I usually wouldn't speak up unless I had something that I felt was really worthwhile. And I would sometimes wait until the proper moment in the class to ask the dying question that I had to ask. Now, sometimes that I would ask that question at the end of the class rather than 
derail the conversation for 20 minutes, but I had this professor for a class named Spiritual Formation, and throughout it, we had to keep a journal of reflections on the readings, and then we'd talk about certain topics, and we'd have to journal about that, and for Spiritual Formation semester one and semester number two, I look back and I bet I was a punk because every single topic that was brought up, I had to ask the question, why is it done this way? Well, why are we doing it this way? Does it have to be done like this? Can't it be like this? Why do we use these words? Why is it like this? Why do we use those practices? And at the end of the semester, we had to hand in our journal, which would have been very difficult to fabricate the night before. So I'm really glad that I actually kept up with my journal because I had something like 40 or 50 pages, which would have been so hard to write up the night before it was due to go back in time. However, we eventually got those back. And this professor, he and I seemed to get along pretty well. Uh, I haven't run into him in a long time. I hope he's doing well. But... In the mail, from the professor, I got my journal back. And inside was supposed to be the grade of which I received for the class. I got it back, and it said an A. It wasn't A minus, wasn't A plus either. But I got an A, which was on one level kind of easy because it was a very participatory class, and I liked participating in the discussions. But on the inside cover... This professor wrote, keep being an iconoclast. And that was it. It said in red pen, A, and then keep being an an iconoclast. Now, I had no idea what this word meant. Even though I was in grad school, I had to go look it up on Wikipedia. So I did. And... Iconoclasts were really a fascinating group of people. So way back in the day, the church was going through this time where it was starting to use more and more paintings because they realized a lot of people were illiterate and didn't get to know the stories of the Bible. And so paintings were starting to happen. And as they were growing in their sophistication, some people would look towards the paintings and use it as like, something to keep them fixated on what they were trying to pray about. Now, to the outsiders that were doing church differently, they heard about that and thought they were praying to the paintings rather than through the paintings towards what the paintings were about, which were usually pictures of Jesus. And so the neighboring church folk came through, smashed into the church, and then torched or tore down all of those paintings. They were called icons, hence iconoclasts. And so, let me read you what Wikipedia says is the title or what the definition of iconoclast is. Uh, An iconoclast is a person with a social belief in the importance of the destruction of icons or images or monuments most frequently for religious or political reasons. So they they really don't like symbols, I guess, in one way. Over time, though, 
this is Wikipedia, the word usually in the adjectival form, which is like trying to describe someone, has also come to refer to aggressive statements or actions against any well-established status quo. So it, it, the word iconoclast, although it started talking about paintings and icons and images and even monuments or statues, it has come to be a word because over time it's been used differently. It has come to be known as a, an aggression against the status quo. Oh, isn't that good? And then the very last line, which I've underlined here, it says, it is a frequent component of major political or religious changes. Now, how does this have to do with the title? The holy practice of cow tipping. I mean, in some cultures, sure, cows are sacred. That's not anything new. But let's be honest. How sacred would it be to go into those cultures and tip a cow over? <laughs> I mean, that would, that would be hugely disrespectful, not just to their culture, but also to the cow. But I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense that different areas and different people and different spheres of life, not even just religious ones, but also in work, in friend groups, in families, there are sometimes sacred cows, which are things that, um, it's something that we give undue respect and reverence towards. It's almost as though we respect these things inordinately, too much. You know, we revere things in a grander scale than we ought. We make them because others tell us to. Because some people tell us you have to treat this thing with reverence. You have to treat this thing with respect. And sometimes uh, we make sacred cows because others tell us to. Because they give us some level of comfort. Yet they keep us sometimes from revering the right things or the really good things in life. So what do I mean? Is that sacred cows are sometimes things that we treat too special. And sometimes people want us to keep looking at the sacred cows so that we don't start paying attention to the real things because if we pay attention to the real things, it's going to cause some upheaval. Keep being an iconoclast. Now, I have to say... There was a really funny moment uh, a, f a few Sundays ago. Actually, it was a couple months ago. I was teaching a class where I was inviting some middle schoolers. There was about 22 of them to come join the church I work at in a very, I mean, official way. It was a whole Sunday geared towards celebrating them and their choice and decision to join the spiritual path of Jesus. Fantastic. Who could be against that, right? But... As they are all gathered in a half circle right in front of me. And the whole congregation is behind them, but all the students are looking at me as I'm looking out towards the both of them, the audience and the middle schoolers. I said to them, 
listen to me. Promise me that all of you will be reverent. You will try to revere the right things in life. And then I said this next word, which was so good. I said, be reverent troublemakers. Make trouble for good reasons in this world. Oh, man. And then in that exact moment, I happened to look back and make eye contact with this one kid, Adam, who's fantastic, and he's got so much energy. But as soon as I made eye contact with him, that was the moment when I said, be troublemakers. And then this kid got this gigantic grin on his face because all of a sudden, the pastor at his church just made him promise in front of the whole church to be a troublemaker. And I knew immediately in my head, like, oh, no, I have to clarify. Don't just be a troublemaker, but be a troublemaker for good. Keep being an iconoclast. When I had that professor, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was kind of asking questions about the status quo. And there's status quos around us all the time, not just in religious circles, but also among friends, we have a status quo. Among workplaces, we have this bar set about how things should be done and how we act and all these things. Now, not, not always is a status quo bad. Hopefully, it's, it's at a good and reasonable level that, that actually encourages some people to pick it up. However, Sometimes the status quo isn't always something we stand on. Sometimes the status quo can be a ceiling to us from growing, that it's actually keeping us hampered down at like half of our height. So sometimes the status quo ceiling needs to be broken, in which case I have to say, keep being an iconoclast. So I found it really fascinating There was a study that was done about how right now (laughs) a lot of major businesses are encouraging their own people to meditate and to pray during work hours. That they'll set aside like 20 minutes or a half hour to pray or to meditate because they actually think that that increases productivity, which is true because it diminishes anxiety and enables you to be more conscious and more conscientious. It helps you to evaluate and take a step back and rather than be reactive, maybe give a thoughtful response to things. So prayer and meditation really do have positive outcomes. The only thing is, be careful of praying too much is something I wanted to say to some of these businesses. Because to pray and to meditate, it will inevitably disrupt your life. Because it's going to start imposing order on the places in your life that have disorder. And then it's to pray and to meditate is going to help to give you that reverent and analytic distance from your own habits and activities And then ask if you're going about them in the right way. So in some sense, prayer and meditation helps us to reflect on our own status quos. And that was was a funny thing. I wanted to tell some of these businesses 
you may not know what you just invited because there's a tipping point, you know? Yes, workers will start to improve their work, but they may also start calling out corrupt business practices. Ooh, illegal activities, dysfunctional teams, and even ineffectual leaders. You start to pray, and you're going to start to see your eyes open up to what is the status quo ceiling that needs to be broken. And that can be in your religious setting, but it can also be at businesses. That can be at, among friends with your own family. Keep being an iconoclast. You see, the world needs more iconoclasts. It needs more people who go around, find the sacred cows that we are revering more than we should, and tip them over. Now, this whole time, I've had this mind this picture in my mind of Tommy Boy, which was one of the best movies with Chris Farley. Because in the movie, at one point, he comes back from college, tries to go back to his family's business, but in the evening decides to go cow tipping. Ah, oh, and that's just one of the best scenes because it backfires and then there's a cow stampede and it's just pandemonium. But sometimes that pandemonium needs to happen. Sometimes culture or households or businesses or churches, they all need to have some of their sacred cows tipped over. If you were to go back and reread through some of the Hebrew scriptures, some of the prophets, the major and minor ones, So like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Nahum, Joel, you can even say uh, Jonah, all of them. There are some sacred cows in every single one of those that are being knocked over. Now I say sacred cow is symbolism. All of them are trying to disrupt what people thought were important and try to remind people what actually was of ultimate importance. Every single one of those prophets are preaching against a status quo. They were iconoclasts. How wonderful would it be if the world had some more iconoclasts that would help to disrupt the status quo and not lower it, but raise it. How wonderful would it be if there were some more iconoclasts out there that, oh man, raised that status quo even further by looking around and saying, hey, I see the practices, I see the habits of us, of my friend group, of our families, of our businesses, of our places of worship, and say, hey, we got to do this better We are making some things sacred cows that really are just normal cows. (laughs) That's such a funny statement. I can't believe I just said that today. Anyways, I have a quote for you. Now, back when I was in grad school, I had to read a book called Pilgrims of Christ on the Muslim Road. And it's about a man who was a missionary in his Muslim culture. And it's about how he found a way to still be 
devoutly about the Christ, yet not adopting a Western um, mode of being, he still maintained his Middle Easternness. Anyways, he has a quote in there by a guy named Mazar, who says, Christ came to bring the kingdom of God in the human heart, not to establish another religion. His message is very simple, actually. However, as they say, when the Christian faith moved to the Greeks, they made it into a philosophy. And when it went to the Romans, they made it into an institution. And when it went all the way to the West, it was turned into an enterprise and a business. The world needs more iconoclasts because authentic faith is not really a philosophy and it's certainly not an institution and it certainly is not supposed to be an enterprise or a business. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of churches and places of worship implode or fall apart because they have made following the Christ into something that it was never supposed to be, namely a philosophy, an institution, or a business. I have one final quote for you. And it's a, it's a tough one, but I, I think when I first read it, I had to close the book and put it down and ask myself why this quote resonated with me. So here we go. Let me pull it up. So I've made mention of this priest named Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit, who's a French Jesuit priest. But he says at one point, um, in his own personal journals, he was reflecting on the fact that his that the Roman Catholic Church of his day, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, were censoring him, and were not letting his writings and some of his reflections be published until after he passed away if at all. And so here is a quote from his own personal journals. It says, Of course, I can see well enough what is paradoxical in this attitude. If I need Christ and the church, I should accept Christ as he is presented by the church, with its burdens of rights, administration, and theology. And this is the best part. But now I can't get away from the evidence that the moment has come when the Christian impulse should save Christ from the hands of the clerics so that the world may be saved. I think that's probably the, the hardest thing. What does it mean that at some point Christians will have to save Christ from the clerics in order to save the world? Because we all have the tendency to put a status quo on faith and on Christ and sometimes to make the Christ about things that he was never really about. And I don't know if you're listening wherever in the world. I saw the analytics. It says there's people listening to this in New Zealand and Germany and the Netherlands and, of course, in America. But... 
What does it mean to be an iconoclast? In the best sense of the word possible. Not to go around and smash things that other people find important, but maybe to go around and actually evaluate as humbly as we can where the status quo is is being kept as a low ceiling and asking whether or not it's a good strategy or how we should go about challenging the systems, the frameworks, the families, the businesses, and the churches, houses of worship for which we are a part. What does it look like for us to become iconoclasts in the same tradition as the Old Testament prophets? Oh, isn't that just, that's fascinating. But one of the most important things is that to be an iconoclast, it needs to come not from a place of anger that's fueled by hate. To be an iconoclast has to come with a, a sense of love and even in one sense, broken heartedness that we have become preoccupied with things that are of less importance. What does it say, what does it mean to with brokenheartedness to say we have loved the wrong things too much and we have said some things are sacred when they really aren't and we have to take a step back and just like prayer and meditation in businesses we've got to give ourselves a meditative and contemplative analytic distance, take a step back and ask, where are we revering the wrong things too much? So I don't have an answer for that. In fact, that's part of the beauty of it is that you have the responsibility and maybe even the duty to find out those things for yourself in all of the spheres of life where you are. I could very easily say that for myself, I could maybe point out a few places where status quo isn't being helpful. I think I could probably name a few places where some things have been revered too much in a bad sense. But whatever my list is, is going to be different from yours. So I encourage you, I exhort you, I admonish you, take a moment and sit down and pray or meditate or, or give a thoughtful response, a journal about it. Where are the places in your life and in your spheres, work, family, house of worship, where you know you and your people are revering the wrong things? And then comes the fun task of having the imagination and the grit and the gumption to go and tip some of those cows over. Tip over some of those sacred cows that are not really sacred. And point people towards rising up and to setting a new bar for how people are going to operate, how families are going to be, how businesses are going to go about their activities and so much more. Because if anything, the Christ that, at least in the Christian tradition, we all point like Jesus is the Christ. If you want to say there's a direction of Christ, it's always up and forward. 
never down and back. And so in any practice in which you and your family, business, or house of worship is going backwards and spiraling down, that is not of, of Christ because the movement of Christ, the direction of Jesus is always forward and growing up. It's an upward movement. That being said, let me finish with a benediction and then we'll be done. So may you, the listener, give yourself pause. May you give yourself a time of day in which you take a step back and reflect upon the things that of which you revere. And may you, with prayer and meditation, reflect thoughtfully on whether or not those are things worth really revering. And then may you have the courage to knock over the sacred cows of which have been propped up all around you. May you have the strength of will to say, I will stop revering these things that I don't need to revere. And may you, the listener, step into what it means for you in your own capacity to be an iconoclast. Grace and peace be with you until next time. We'll catch you later.